I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2004. Please enjoy. I have devoured with great interest and enthusiasm a book called Kepler's Witch, an astronomer's discovery of cosmic order amid religious war, political intrigue, and the heresy trial of his mother. The book is by uh, Dr. James A. Connor who uh, is a professor of English at Keene University in Union, uh, New Jersey, uh, the author of uh, several other books. And this one is tremendously fascinating, published by Harper San Francisco. The name Kepler, I hope, will be uh, at least somewhat familiar to many of you. It refers to Johannes Kepler, who was a very important uh, astronomer. And uh, we, he is the kind of person that, that we need to know better in terms of his importance and significance uh, from a purely scientific uh, perspective. But it's also uh, true that Johannes Kepler lived during a tremendously fascinating, turbulent time in European history. And uh, we learn much of that historic backdrop as well uh, through the pages of this book. And then there is the incredibly compelling story of what occurs to Kepler's mother, who is accused of and convicted of being a witch. All of that uh, captured in this fascinating book. And I'm very grateful to uh, James A. Connor for writing this book and for joining us today on The Morning Show to talk about it. My pleasure. Glad that you are with us. In, uh, in I'm, I'm afraid, what has to be uh, something of a nutshell, uh, tell us why Johannes Kepler, from a scientific perspective, is uh, a significant figure that we need to know. Okay, if, if uh, modern science is a house, Johannes Kepler was one of the people who laid the foundation. He was one of the four great astronomers, uh, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton. He basically set the stage for, for Newton and Newton's laws. He's the guy who discovered the, the shape of the, the orbits of the planets, the way, that the, the, um, uh, the way that the solar system worked. He, he uh, basically set the first, and it was fall, it was, it was wrong, but he, he bid, did the first version of gravity, uh, gravitational fields and forces. And um, he was the guy who basically discovered why snowflakes are shaped the way they are. He discovered a method for measuring the insides of wine barrels. He's also the guy who, invented, who discovered how telescopes worked and did the first um, study on, of, of optics. Up until that time, nobody, not even Galileo, really understood why the telescope worked the way it did. And um, he was also the thing, uh, you know, from a purely scientific perspective, he really is one of the great theoreticians of the early scientific period. That's a, at some point you make the, the a distinction between Galileo and Kepler. You say Galileo was the great observer, Kepler was the great theorist. Yes, Galileo and uh, Galileo was a theorist as well, and, and but a lot of his theories were just wrong. His theory of, of why the tides worked were just w wrong. But he, wa he was a man who could interpret observation very well. And many of his observations of the heavens were, were very well interpreted, like the Medicean stars, in other words, the moons of Jupiter, and, and why sunspots are the way they are. But he, um, uh, when it came to putting it all together, it took a guy like Kepler to do it, because Kepler was a brilliant mathematician. He was smarter than just about anybody else in his age, and, um, and suffered for it, too. You mentioned at one point he was a man caught between the grinding wheels of history, not only religious history, but scientific history mm -hmm. as well. We'll explore that. You also touch on the fact that we might know the name uh, Johannes Kepler a little better if, if Isaac Newton had been more careful to uh, more properly acknowledge his own indebtedness right, to Kepler's uh, well, work. 
actually, Newton got a lot of uh, criticism from his friends for that. Um, they all recognized that Kepler had a great deal to do with what Newton had developed, and I think it was very, it was because of that that Newton. This is me. I'm just surmising here, but I believe that it had something to do with the fact that that Newton was a tremendous egotist, and he couldn't stand the fact that so much of his work had been had been the foundation of it had been laid by uh, by Kepler, and so he really ignored Kepler. Whereas Galileo, who gave him some insights and was more off to the side. He praised Galileo to the skies, but he just completely ignored Kepler, and uh, it wasn't really the Protestant Catholic thing. I think it was it was Newton's own ego getting in the way. We're speaking with James A. Connor. His book is Kepler's Witch. You set the stage so beautifully for us in terms of what it was like to live in Europe at this uh, point in time in the uh, 17th century. You said people were afraid. In the 17th century, mystery tolled like a bell in people's lives, disturbing their dreams. They lived in fear of unseen forces, and anything beyond their understanding terrorized them. At this point, you're, you're, you're laying the groundwork to explain uh, the, the outbreak of witch trials across Europe and, and, uh, and Johannes Kepler's own mother being caught up in that. But there is something to that also in, in helping, under, helping us understand the general turbulence of, of these times and what made it a, a difficult point in time uh, for a man like Kepler with outstanding and innovative ideas. I think that um, when, I, when I think about those times, I try to find some kind of emotional bridge between our own times and theirs. And I would say that that, that kind of where mystery sort of told like a bell, I kind of feel that, that if we were to look at the way we were all terrified of AIDS, um, in the 80s, uh, people were people were um, they had a fairly good beat on what AIDS was by the end of the 80s. But but the amount of of information that was around about it, and and the amount of false information that was around about it, and the amount of fear based information that was around um, was was driving people crazy. And I would think that that the 17th century was not unlike that. Whenever people are encounter something that they can't get behind, can't get around. They can't really understand. They can't control. There is that fear reaction. I also think another thing that's going on today is our reaction to um, terrorism. Um, I think that that Americans are reacting to terrorism much in in the same way that people in the 17th century reacted uh, about witches. Um, that the terrorists are sort of an unseen enemy. That they're malevolent. That they're sitting in the middle of your country, and you really can't tell which are the terrorists and which aren't. And the same thing's true with the 17th century um, about witches. That's what they believed that witches were. They were these malevolent people who were just there, and you couldn't tell them from anybody else. Hmm. You say his time on Earth boiled with struggle, not only for him, but also for the Holy Roman Empire, with dark change in the air. Hmm. And you say also it's, it is impossible, maybe, for us to understand a world so permeated with religion. Yes. That that was such, uh, 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 such a factor of, of, of overwhelming uh, significance politically and, and personally in all kinds of, of people's lives. Well, when we live in a secular society like our own, it's very difficult for us to understand just how much religion dominated everybody's life in those days. It, it really is. Uh, Johannes Kepler was a, a devout Lutheran, mm -hmm. but he was uh, at a, at a, living at a point in time when the chasm between Lutherans and Catholics was really widening, and this is something which uh, he himself personally did not in, at all embrace. No, no, he didn't. Uh, and he, uh, the thing is, the one thing that drew me to Kepler, and one thing I loved about him, was that ultimately, 
I would say that not only is he the, the Protestant Galileo, in other words, he got punished for, for his, um, his, his beliefs in Copernicus by the Lutheran Church, but he was also in some ways the, the Protestant Thomas More. He was a man who was told, you know, you know, bend, change, do this, do that. And he showed more faith in, in the Lutheran Church than just about anybody else who was going around. He was a Lutheran to the day he died. And even when they excommunicated him, he was a Lutheran. He would not leave. The when you mean the Lutheran Church uh, yeah, the, excommunicated him? The Lutheran Church excommunicated him, and he would not leave. He said, hey, I'm a Lutheran. You can kick me out. You can tell me I'm not a Lutheran, but I am. And, um, and he, would not, he would not ever acknowledge. And right then, the Jesuits, and I was, I'm a for, former Jesuit, the Jesuits were just sitting over there just licking their chops saying we got to get this guy he's the he's the one of the foremost scientists of the world if we can get him to convert i mean it'll be a big feather in our cap and they tried and and the emperor put pressure on him to be a catholic and all this stuff but he said no i'm a lutheran faith is what matters i'm going to stick by this hmm. and and i think he was the best of lutherans the greatest of lutherans he, uh, you quote him as saying, my beliefs are my beliefs, I make no secret of them. Uh, in that same paragraph, you point out something so insightful about this particular moment in time, that if Kepler had come maybe 50 or 75 years earlier, things might have played out differently. But you say, after the first flush of Reformation, new ideas were no longer the fashion. Right. And young Kepler, the prodigy, produced new ideas like like sparks from a rocket. It was a different atmosphere at that point in time. In fact, I think at some point in the book you talk about how this was the moment in time when uh, innovation was giving way to orthodoxy. And uh, so into that mix, Kepler was not going to have an easy time of it. No, in fact, I, I, I would draw a connection with the Catholic Church in the sense of uh, the Vatican II. There was a time of great you know, um, innovation, and people were talking about change, and it was all in the air, and we're going to have women priests, we're going to have this and that. And suddenly, it's almost as if the more change, turbulent uh, change there is, the more there is a kind of reaction in order to calm everything down. It's like, it's, it's, it's a natural human reaction, I think. And what was going on in the Lutheran Church at that time was a conservative undertow that was going on, because they just simply couldn't stand any more change. The, their, their own... They were beginning to split within their own ranks between those who were more like the Calvinists and more, those who were more like the Catholics. And they, they just had to say, this is what we believe, this is what we hold to. And somebody like Kepler came around. If he had been born 50, 70 years earlier, he would have been praised as the greatest of Lutherans. But he was born when he was at a time in which the Lutheran Church was desperate to find some kind of solid ground to stand on. Right. Well, and of course, in the face of what comes to be known as the Counter-Reformation, right. gathering like storm clouds in the distance. And uh, there's, there's the rub. Yeah, Kepler suffered greatly from the Counter-Reformation, and yet he was the best of friends with a lot of Catholics. I mean, he, he and the Jesuits got along famously. I think there was a kind of um, intellectual mutual respect between them. And he lived in, in right next door to the Jesuit ho uh, college in, in Prague. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and he um, and he worked for the Catholic emperor, who was his greatest enemy in some ways, who kicked him out of one city after another. And he because every time the emperor would say, please, please, please become Catholic, and he would say, nope, can't do it. And he would say, okay, you got to leave. And then he'd move on to the next city. And then when the emperor would take that city, he'd say, please, please, please become Catholic. No, can't do it. And he'd move on to the next one until mm. he died a Lutheran. There's no doubt about it. We're talking with James A. Connor. His book is Kepler's Witch. 
I think one of the uh, most important things for us to talk about is the place of astronomy uh, at this point in time, uh, the, the kind of significance and importance uh, which it had in people's lives, and also the relationship between astronomy and astrology at this point in time. This is one of the things which I think is probably most confusing for, uh, for modern readers. Well, now, what's interesting, I think astrology, I read one book a few years back that, that likened astrology to modern-day economics. Um, it was one of those things that used weird mathematical formulas to predict what was going to happen in the future. And economics sort of does the same thing. Well, um, uh, astrology, Kepler at that time, he didn't have a lot of trust in astrology, and yet there was money in it. And people, everybody wanted him to write these um, these calendars, astrological calendars, and he would do them because, well, he had to feed his family, but that was not really what he believed in. And and so, and yet the problem was he was really good at it. I mean, a lot of his predictions came true. It was like you have your own 900 line, you know, and uh, one 900 line, and, and actually your all your predictions, he's a, he's a psychic, and all his predictions come true even though he doesn't believe in any of it. And he um, he wrote all of these horoscopes for people, but but yet he kept telling them over and over and over again, don't trust these things, don't trust these things. And um, and he, he uh, astrology was at that time Newton really was the worst person who really finally uh, broke with astrology. But almost all the astronomers of that day were astrologers. Tycho Brahe was one. Uh, so was so was Galileo. I mean, they all did horoscopes. Hmm. Now, help us understand the significance of of astronomy and how, for instance, an emperor would have his own imperial astronomer. Uh, at one point you say that when, uh, when Kepler, after a long uh, absence, I think, returned to Prague, uh, you said that in, in some respects, in, in, in astronomical circles at least, he was the closest thing that there would have been to uh, an as astronomical rock star. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, that, that's just a notion that's pretty hard for, for us as modern people to, to get our, to get our, our minds around. Uh, how did astronomy play out in people's lives and in, for instance, royal courts? Uh, why was astronomy so significant? Well, it was, it was interesting that, that actually, uh, this is the funny part about it, is that the emperors always wanted astrologers. The emperors always wanted you to, to, to tell them what they, could, what they should do. Should I attack this country? Should I not attack them? Should I fight the Turks? Should I do this? Should I do that? And that's what they wanted astrolog astronomers for. But, but astronomers, astrologers in that time, were slowly becoming astronomers. And they were representative of a new type of thinking that, that was changing the way people believed about the universe. It was um, it, it was in, in, in a kind of the, the wave of, of a whole new kind of thing. It was the radical edge. And ju just as computers or, or bioengineering is the radical edge for our generation and our world, uh, astronomy was the radical edge for theirs. It was changing. It was turning the world upside down. And for those people who were interested in it, Kepler was the guy who was making a lot of that happen. Hmm. You say that the theories of Copernicus set Kepler's mind on fire. Yeah. Remind us of what a revolutionary Copernicus was and then how Kepler uh, took, took up the, the charge from there. Well, the, the, the universe up until Copernicus's day um, was what, it, it, was, it was sort of common sense. You're standing on the earth, you see the stars wheeling around overhead, you see the moon go up and down, and you see the sun go up and down, and you figure, well, okay, the whole universe is turning around us, and it made sense. 
Copernicus finally realized after years and years and years in which they kept trying to make this machine work, and it just didn't, he said, wait a minute, this is much too complicated, and more than that, it makes more sense that the Earth turn that, than that the, uh, all the stars and heavens and everything else turn around us. So he, he actually wrote a book called the, On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, and he was so afraid, afraid of what he had done that he refused to publish it until after he died. On his deathbed, he finally let them publish the thing, and they put a copy on his death deathbed just a few hours before he died. And he um, uh, he was terrified of what he had written, and so uh, the book slowly filtered out to all the intellectuals um, in Europe at the time, and there were those people who were horrified by it because it, it undercut what they thought was scripture, um, which of course is a reading of scripture that that you know was was very literal and very uh, mistaken in some ways. And they, um, uh, they also were terrified of the fact that it just simply turned everything people had been believing since prehistoric times, really, on its head. And here was Kepler. He came along, and, he, and to him, he could see it. It was like a light went off when he was in college. And he had a teacher named Michael Maislin who taught him these things. And he, he just said, of course, this makes sense. And when Kepler thought something made sense, by God, you couldn't get him out of it. <laughs> it's funny. You say at one point... Kepler, uh, for, for the genius that he was, was probably a bit naive oh, and, God, had, yes. yeah, and had little idea about the trouble that his enthusiasm uh, tended to cause. Yeah, he was, he was brighter than everybody else, but he was, what we would say about Kepler is that he had a high IQ but a low EQ. Mm. You know, he, he did not have a very good uh, emotion quotient. He, he, he didn't understand people. He didn't understand what was going on around him. He he um, he constantly got into fights and then realized what he had done and apologized profusely, and and he was this guy who who um, who was a very generous guy, but he he uh, he had his ideas and and he would work them out and he was right most of the time and he just would not give in. He was if he was a dog, he'd be one of those little terriers that would just bite and hold. Hmm. And he uh, he was this guy who uh, who who was absolutely certain about his his reasons for doing what he did, and he believed in them, and he would not change. Very thought, stubborn guy. I thought it was interesting uh, when you talk about him publishing his Mysterium Cosmographicum. Yeah. Uh, he talks about how, um, uh, talks about the usefulness of this book, perhaps, for the unreflecting. I think that's such an interesting choice of terms, but it's I think, speaks to Kepler's interest in trying to connect not just with people that easily and quickly uh, embraced his ideas and innovations, but even for those whom he called unreflecting by nature, mm -hmm. Kepler hoped to make some kind of connection, perhaps. Kepler was not an ivory tower guy. Even though he spent his life uh, was surrounded by ivory tower people, he was not really that way. He was the son of a, the grandson of a mayor of a town. He, his father was a soldier. He, uh, he just basically was not the kind of guy who wanted to to write only for the mass for for the I mean for the um, uh, the intellectuals he was the kind of guy who believed that he he was being attacked in a way for being uh, an intellectual he was and, and he thought a lot of people just dismissed astronomy as being useless who cares but he tried to show that astronomy was something that was intensely uh, spiritual and he was really looking for the mind of God 
and he he thought that this was of great import to the import to the the daily lives of the average person, and that if they were not reflecting on it, they it, they would only meant that they didn't understand how important this was. Mm. That is an important uh, tenet of Kepler's approach to to astronomy, that that for him the study of the heavens and our world's place in the heavens was also an experience of of seeing the face of God somehow. Yeah, absolutely. See, this is a time, and, and I think we're used to seeing some kind of war going on between science and religion, and I think that that, um, that is really a historical artifact. It's a product of the religious wars. I really, this is my own thesis, uh, but, and some people have argued with me about it, and I've had some great arguments, but uh, I think that it's, the world didn't have to go the way it did. Um, I believe that science at the 17th century, science was really a religious, not a religious, a spiritual exercise. They were really looking for God, and that's what Kepler was doing. And it was an intensely spiritual as well as an intensely rational pursuit hmm. on his life. We need to talk about Johannes Kepler's mother mm. and her uh, horrific experience of being charged with being a witch and yeah. eventually convicted yeah. uh, of, of that uh, crime, as if we put it in, in, in quotes. And she, of course, was not alone. And you talk about uh, Europe at this point in time being what you say uh, was at the pinnacle of witch mania. Right. Tell us, first of all, uh, the, the events or attitudes which seem to uh, fan these flames. Well, okay, a lot of times... Uh, people have all kinds of theories today about the witch trials, but the witch trials were largely something that grew up out of the uh, out of the small towns. Um, a lot of it was gossip. If, if you've ever been in a small town, you'll realize that they pick out people that they don't like, and and they find some way to make their lives hell. And in in Katerina's case, she was not an easy person to get along with. She was a funny little person who who was just like her son, absolutely determined with 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 what she believed was right, and by God, you couldn't change her mind. And she ended up, uh, she was smarter than anybody else in town. I think that was something that ran in the family. But she was also uneducated, and she just got weird. And the people picked her out, in some ways, as being um, a scapegoat. Hmm. Uh, it was at a time in which people were afraid of, uh, people got sick all the time. You know, we have no idea. Um, we get sick once a year, and then we get over it, and then we go to the doctor, and we get some antibiotics and taken care of. When people got sick in the 17th century, they stayed sick for years. And people just kind of went around with, with one kind of illness, and their babies died right and left, and, and, and suddenly there were famines, and all these disasters were happening to them. Well, Katerina was, um, was basically got, in, got into a fight with an old friend of hers, a woman named Ursula Reinbold, and the two of them had been, you know, kind of nasty cronies for a while. And suddenly they got into this big fight. Ursula had been the town prostitute and had had a very bad reputation. And um, in the midst of the fight, this reputation was brought up to her. She hated it, and she didn't want it, and she basically ended up hating the Keplers from that point on, and she was going to get them. Hmm. She came down with a mysterious illness. Uh, a lot of the scholars think it's a result of some potion she was taking to perform an abortion on herself. And she ended up um, becoming very sick, and she blamed Katerina Kepler for poisoning her. You know, I, I want to mention one of my favorite moments in the book when you, in trying to explain why charges of, of, of being a witch would be <laughs> thrown around as they were, you say stories about witches made sense of the unfathomable misfortunes of life, why right. children die, why we sicken, why we grow old. This was an answer. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
and and so that's why people gravitated it, uh, to it in a time when when people were desperate for answers. Right. You you mentioned the fact that this was an interesting bonding experience for Johannes Kepler and his mother. You say they were very different from each other, but they were both stubborn misfits, and yeah. so they they could, in a sense, identify with one another. And he did everything he could on her behalf. Well, in fact, the rest of her family, except her daughter. Um, but but her son, uh, the one who actually caused all the problem in the first place, because he he was the one, the source of the argument with Ursula Reinbold, he wanted to distance himself from her and 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 um, her son, her daughter Margareta, and her and Johannes were the ones who stayed by her through thick and thin. And Johannes came; he was there in in Linz. He was still the emperor's mathematician. He was living in Austria at the time, and he dropped everything. You know. He, he was teaching at a school, and he cut his classes and everything, and he came all the way uh, to Swabia, to, to uh, Württemberg, to talk, to basically run his mother's trial. And he, he was so filled with, um, with grief over her suffering. Here she was, a 77-year-old woman, and she was 74-year-old woman, I think. And by that time, it was almost 77. She was, she was you know, put in a, in a, in a cell, an uh, un, unheated cell with a bunch of... Uh, these these brutish uh, guards who were there with her all the time, and she was just treated shamefully, not said very well, and everything else. And they were basically bleeding her bank account in order to pay for her upkeep, while they piled on the wood for themselves. And and it was a it was a terrible thing that had happened to her. And he bonded with her in the sense that that his his heart went out to her. His Poor mother. He kept writing these letters. How dare you guys treat my mother this way? She's just a poor old woman. She is in, convicted. She is not uh, executed, but no. given a very interesting, uh, an interesting sentence. Uh, I can't remember what the exact term. Oh, the, here it is. The terizio verbalis. Yes, the cognition of torture. Yeah. Threatened with torture devices. As it was explained to her how they worked and so on. Right. Uh, uh, must have been a, a terrifying experience. Well, it's what, it's what Galileo went through. And what they did was they brought him into a room, and the executioner and the prosecutor would stand there, and they would show them the instruments of torture and explain exactly how it would work. And they'd say, we're going to do this to you if you don't confess. If you don't, and in Galileo's case, it was if you don't confess your heresy. But in, in case of Kepler and of Katerina, if you don't com- confess your, your witchcraft and your, your, your uh, selling your soul to the devil and all this stuff. And, they, and this went on for hours this wasn't just a hey. Here's here's this is what we do with the pincers, and this is what we do with this. No, no, no. It was threatening them, saying we're going to do this to you. We're going to do it now. And they would heat up the irons, and they would point them at her, and they would threaten her. And she would not bend. She knelt down and she said, "In our Father," and she said, um, "God, you know, you know that I'm not. I've not done any of these things. You know, I'm innocent. So you protect me." Mm. And and she said, uh, "God will protect me. You will not." You will not do this to me. Like mother, and, like son. Yes, you bet. <laughs> uh, he didn't. He didn't get this from nowhere. He was definitely her son. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting how Johannes Kepler, through various points in his life, as he experiences all kinds of difficulties, would often, in a sense, retreat into the world of of astronomy. Yeah. You say at some points that it was almost like a fortress. He could enclose himself there inside the perfection of mathematics, inside the transcendental beauty of geometry, and bolt the door of his mind to keep the screaming world outside. Did you ever, did, you know, did you ever, in that movie um, Amadeus, where, where Mozart would go off to his study and compose music when the whole world around him was falling apart, that's kind of the way I thought of Kepler. Kepler would compose mathematics. In fact, the thing that drew me to him um, and you see this at the beginning of the book when I'm talking to that student in the train, 
is that he, the reason that I did this whole book in the first place is that here is a man whose, wife, whose mother is being tried for witchcraft, who's been excommunicated by his church, who's been pushed from one city to the next by the Counter-Reformation, and he's writing a book called The Harmony of the World. Hmm. And it's all based on music and the idea that finally underneath all the chaos of human relations, there's this beautiful mind of God at work. Hmm. And that that's a guy you got to love. <laughs> you know? He's just like, good grief. He's one of those great minds and great souls. And I think that if there's if there's saints of science, I think Kepler's one of them. And if there's Lutheran saints, I think he's one of them, too. The book is Kepler's Witch, an astronomer's discovery of cosmic order amid religious war, political intrigue, and the heresy trial of his mother, published by Harper San Francisco, a division of HarperCollins, and the author, James A. Connor. James A. Connor, I loved this book, and I really Great. enjoyed speaking with you about it today on The Morning Show. I thank you so much. Great. Thanks for letting me have a chance to visit with you.